Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. What's going on? No, I see. All right, we were talking about language and Broca's area, so neural development. Um, we got a four-year-old, for example, that understands maybe 1,500 words and uses uh, sentences, etc. Uh, by six, the kid can understand tens of thousands of terms. An adult may have a vocabulary of 50,000 people. That's a pretty big vocabulary. But it isn't beyond the realm. It's not a silly, ridiculously high. Uh, just partly depends on what language you speak. Some languages have more words than others. You know, but for the most part, any language has more than 50,000 words. So you know, you're in pretty good shape there. Um, this could be correlated to dendritic development in Broca's area. We don't know. It makes a great deal of sense, however. Right? Because it's language production, and we can look at dendritic growth, and that changes roughly at these different stages. And because linguistic development is cross-cultural, and it doesn't matter what language you're learning, and there's a one-word stage, a two-word stage, and you start speaking in sentences, um, I think it's pretty safe to say this is probably true. Note all the qualifications. Pretty safe to say, probably true. Now, this is harder looking at cognitive development in the brain. So if we were to look at, so this is like I'm talking about you know, complex problem solving, reasoning. That's a little harder. Um, because we know the stages of language development, psychologists, linguists, and psycholinguists have been studying this stuff for so long, we got a good handle on that. On the other hand, cognitive development's a little harder. You can look at sort of Piaget in stages. I think I spelled that. That's probably how you spell Piaget, and if it's not, it is now. Uh, the problem with Piaget, first of all, is that it may not totally be true. Um, it's probably not nearly. See, the nice thing about language is that there's a there's telegraphic speech, there's you know, like one word, so it's a two-word telegraphic speech, they call that. Then there's sentences. It happens in the same order in everybody, and if it doesn't happen by the time you're about three, your kid should go get tested. As I said the other day, your kid might have a problem with could be hearing, it could be communication disorders, all kinds of possibilities, but we know that. Cognitive development, it isn't so clear-cut. So Piaget, by the way, I'm not making fun of Piaget in any way, uh, because Piaget, he had a publication at the age of seven. That's kind of good. <laughs> I went 21, 22 was my first one. 21. He was seven. <laughs> he, he sold off. He was about butterflies. And it wasn't like just him writing a poem about butterflies and cutting out hearts. Like, it was a scientific article he wrote. And he was seven. So he was smart. The idea of object permanence is something that Piaget's really into, right? You know, the idea of out of sight, out of mind. So before, say, six months old, kids have no object permanence. That's what Piaget says. Or said, he's dead now. So you know you do this. You got the... You play with a kid. Six-month-old kid. Jeez, and you put him behind your hand. They have no idea. It's like your pen and teller. <laughs> you know, you're magic. By the way, don't start doing that on a plane. You gotta do it the whole flight. You got a baby near you, you now become that baby's entertainment system for the whole flight. So ignore small children on airplanes. 
don't talk to them, don't make eye contact, and you'll be fine. I love kids, but I, I, on airplanes, it's like, no, I must go here. <laughs> I will now sit down, put my headphones on, and close my eyes. I'm sorry, I'm paying attention to the security demonstration. I don't know how to use a seatbelt. Um, <laughs> but it turns out, in fact, that kids probably do have object permanence before six months old. Depends on get tested. So, and also, Piaget said that animals didn't have object permanence, and uh, my friend Sylvain said has certainly shown that animals have object permanence. So, uh, quite young as well. So, I mean, it's suggestive we can look, but it's not the, the steps aren't as clear as they are in safe uh, linguistic stuff. There are growth growth spurts that happen in cortex that are roughly at the same time as like well zero to two, and then six to seven is another one, and then around twelve are the different stages, you know, from uh, concrete and then formal operation, all those Piaget things. I never took developmental in my life and I don't want to start. Um, whoops. So that's suggestive. But beyond that, there's probably not a whole lot we could say. So we're not entirely clear yet. And in fact, frankly, cognitive development stuff, it's hard work. Um, working with work, working with toddlers is hard because they don't know things. The toddlers, for example, if you take a three and a half year old kid and you show him with a puppet show, you know, a little puppet show. It's a real experiment. This is why biologists would say puppet shows. Yeah, that's science. So you get a little puppet show going, and you, 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 your puppet's got crayons. For a three-year-old, he says, look at this one, it's blue. That's the voice they put on. I don't know why. <laughs> and this one's red. And this one's magenta. And this is a word, of course, the kids have never heard before. Two minutes later, experimenter comes to the room. Yeah, so uh, see, you've got some crayons. What color is that one? Oh, that one's blue. How color is that? That's red. Color that? That's magenta. Magenta? I've never heard that word before. Where did you learn that? My mom told me. I always knew that. You were told it by a puppet two minutes ago in the same room. So it's hard to do cognitive development work just because kids don't have, you know, like Homer Simpson said, kids are stupid. So they don't have any sort of meta, their metacognition level is not the same as yours or mine. Right? So it's hard to do. So I'm not making fun of developmental uh, psychology, especially uh, cognitive development stuff. It's hard work. Um, let's talk about things that affect both. Things that we know affect the brain and things that we know affect the nervous system. So, basically environmental effects. We know that, for example, with enriched rats, these are rats that you are... Typically, you treat rats like this in an experiment. You put them in a cage and you feed them in there and then when you need them, you take them out to run the, the maze and you put them back in the cage. That's they get water and food. Enriched rats get toys. They also get played with. There's a class of experiments. The rats are given little toys to play with. They're also for 10 minutes a day held by the experimenter and stroked and talked to. You know, like you do with a pet. By the way, if you got a rat, you gotta do it like that, put your elbow right to your like that, or they get right in there. You do. And you got to make sure you have a lab coat on and it's kind of tight at the cuffs because if not, they run up your sleeves. <laughs> First time that happens, it's a little creepy. Then you realize that it's kind of harmless. 
Then one bites you because your finger looks a lot like a food pellet. And you shake it off like that. That might just be me. Um, so the enriched rats, so you enrich them as they're growing up. So the first 28 days of life, like after their pups. So little rat pups, you give them a couple of a week. They're small enough now, and, but they're independent enough. You can even carry them and stuff. You play with them, you give them toys. And you compare enriched rats to the way you normally treat rats in experiments, which is, you know, you put them in the cage, you feed them, you, you're nice to them, but it's not like you're playing with them and giving them toys. They end up with a thicker, significantly thicker cortex than sort of standard rats. Enriched rats. They're also better at mazes. So when you put them on a, a standard, what's called an eight-arm radial maze, which is a maze that has a central platform and eight arms that radiate out, <coughs> with, radiate out with the spokes of a wheel, looks like an asterisk, and you put food at the end of each arm. Rats are really good at that really quickly. Uh, the ones that are enriched make fewer errors and learn to do the maze perfectly a lot more quickly than your sort of standard ones. So it's nice. We see that better at mazes, that's, that, that's an effect on behavior. We see cortical thickening, that's an effect on brain. This plasticity itself decreases with age. So once they're past about a month old, you're not going to help them much. You've got to realize a month old rat's an adult rat. Right? In 28 days, they're sexually mature. So basically we figure what's happened here is that experience is fine-tuned sort of connections. In other words, we're talking about neural Darwinism here. Because rats, just like us, are basically born with all the neurons they're ever going to have. I guess I know get gyrus, etc. But for the most part, all the ones they're ever going to have. If you enrich them, if you play with them, if you and if you, you give them other activities to do, they just learn more stuff. More neurons get synapses, therefore they get AGF, and they don't die. So we can talk about here, in general, we can talk about critical periods and sensitive periods. Now, a critical period is a term that originally comes from biology. Uh, well, from basically a lot of it from uh, animal behavior. So imprinting, that kind of thing, and song learning. The idea of a critical period is if the animal doesn't get a certain experience by a certain time post and a lot of this stuff was done with birds, so post-hatch, but it can be post-birth, um, that they won't ever learn to do a certain uh, behavior. So, for example, uh, you may know about Conrad Lorenz and his work with um, geese, right? And that when the geese were hatched, the first thing they saw were Lorenz's uh, rubber boots, and they basically imprinted on his rubber boots, so when he would walk around in the rubber boots, they'd follow him around like they were his mom, or he was their mom. Okay. If birds don't get this, now Lorenz said it's a critical period to prove that birds don't get it within a few days post-hatch, they never learn it. That's not really quite true. Uh, it, Especially if it's boots, and it's irreversibly set. Especially if it's boots, you can imprint them on your bird pretty quickly. Um, and it's not like they... It's more a sensitive period. It's more the idea that they're more sensitive to learn this at certain parts of the world. We do know there are connections that are made 
Um, you know, part of the bird brain called the uh, intramedial hyperstriatum ventrale, the IMHB. There's an increase in NMDA receptors in the IMHB of birds once they have learned, once they've imprinted. 47% increase in, uh, in NMDA receptors in IMHB once birds have imprinted. This is work done by Nikki Clayton. So we see the imprinting behavior, and we also see the changes in brain. Okay. Same sort of thing happens with bird song. Uh, and, you know, and, and Jen Foote or Larry Bloomfield can tell you at a much more expert level than I can about that. But there is the hyperstratum accessorium, another part of the bird brain, that is correlated with birds learning their own song. And there's a sensitive period for when birds can learn song. Now we see the same thing, and if they don't hear their own song, usually within a few months uh, post-hatch, they never learn the same problem. Not unlike human language, right? If you don't learn, if you're not exposed to language, by the time you're four or five years old, you're never really going to learn language. You'll learn better than any other animal on the planet will, but not like any other human. And there are horrible examples of sort of abuse and neglect where that's happened. Um, I talked today about the, uh, in, in my cortex back here, there, there are cells that never did fire because they never got the input of my eyes focusing on something. So those cells almost certainly died. I didn't need them anyway. <laughs> Just trying it on tough. I don't need extra brain, screw brain cells. I run this whole thing on glial cells. Um, so crit critical periods, sensitive periods are important concepts here. Um, we'll talk a lot about that in the animal behavior class next year. It's like 3106. Be there. So we'll plug for my class. I'd like to give plugs for the classes. I think it's good. Increase my enrollment at the expense of others. Um, now there are things that are horrible that can happen to, to, to nervous systems and to humans, and one of the same here. Um, do you know about Romanian orphans? I, in about 19, well, in 1990, it's so weird that I have to explain it. In 1990, the, the, the Iron Curtain fell. Um, so the Berlin Wall falls, and the, the, the final Eastern European country to throw off the yoke of totalitarianism was Romania. Uh, and this wasn't one of those nice revolutions where everyone dances in the streets and the communists go, I guess we really should go. This was one where they were shooting. Um, and the country was run by a Lewis bad man, Nikolai Ceausescu, who was a very, very bad man. And his government wouldn't let women have abortions. Again, I don't want to discuss discussion about that. But he also, his government, because it's a totalitarian state, forced, like, they would check women every year to see if they had an abortion. And there are exams you can do. So women were forced, in essence, and, and, and birth control was illegal. So people had kids, but they couldn't um, look after the kids. So a lot of times they're put into these orphanages. And we in the West didn't know about this. And then when Romania uh, had the revolution, uh, these, these uh, 
it's really heartbreaking to think back to it. I, I remember seeing reports on CNN of these kids uh, chained inside cribs, uh, and there's shit everywhere because no one's ever looked after them, and like chained up like little animals. Um, and it was really horrible. Now, of course, a flood of, of, of people from the West, from Canada, the United States, from, from Western Europe, um, adopted these kids. Okay? And this gives us an example of something. <clears throat> now, it's depressing, but this is an experiment in nature. The more early the kids were adopted, the better off they became. And the nice thing, in fact, and they're, they're your age, or in fact, most of them a little bit older than you guys are. Um, if they were adopted before about three or four, yeah, their IQ is need of 100, standard deviation of 15, their, their, their health is fine, just like you'd expect. The older the kids were, though, uh, they were in a lot more trouble. Lower IQ scores, uh, more illness, uh, behavior problems in general. Behavior problems in general. So this, this was a real, I mean, it was... Uh, like I said, the thing is, it's a giant experiment in nature, in essence. So that was depressing. But we do know that, in, that this is just like the rich rats. This is kids getting no health care, getting no enrichment, not playing, all that stuff. Older they get, the more problems. Now, the other one you might hear about is crack babies. So if your mom does crack, then you're a crack baby. Now, the thing is, when crack cocaine came out in about 1982, it was originally thought of as the worst kind of thing ever. Again, I'm not pro-crack cocaine, just to make that clear. But There's all kinds of problems. Like, I mean, crack cocaine, the average sentence length is longer than for powdered cocaine, which is bad, because um, it's funny. Who uses the crack cocaine? I think it's the blacker people. Hmm, interesting. I'm not usually one to say racism, but yeah, right there. Um, it's cheaper. People are really concerned. What about these babies? They're going to grow up. One guy wrote a paper once who said... We're going to have a whole generation of people that are nothing more than animals. They will be crack babies. He also used that voice, which was disturbing. Um, turns out, this also happens. People have these babies, they're crack smokers, but then they give up the babies for adoption. Right? A lot of times you've got a single mom, no family, she goes to jail, she gets up a baby. Kid get, kids get adopted out, they tend to be fine. I am not telling you to smoke crack when you're pregnant. The bigger issue here is, in fact, any time that there are, uh, and the older the kid is when they're adopted out, the worse case they are. Uh, but if they're adopted out right away, and we factor out the fact that most people that do crack also have, say, poor nutrition, they tend to drink when they're pregnant. They smoke cigarettes when they're pregnant. If we factor all that stuff in, the crack actually is a problem. As is often the case with, with, with illegal drugs, um, it's not as much, with, with most, not all, 
uh, illegal drugs, the effects are certainly compounded by the fact that the drugs are illegal. So you've got to be go hang out with criminals to get them. So the nice thing is, it's not like your life is over if your mom smoked crack. It's not like, same sort of thing with alcohol. We know that you can drink, we know this and no one tells pregnant mothers this. Having the odd drink when you're pregnant is not that big a deal. It's having seven is the problem. Right? A friend of ours from France actually was told when she was pregnant, you know, just one glass of wine a day. And if you smoke, cut down to two or three a day. Because in France, apparently, they're civilized. Because <laughs> here, they go, don't, you don't even look at alcohol. You can't even look at it. And I think they're afraid that people go, if, I, if they said it was one a day, well, I won't have any all week, and I'll say off seven on Saturday. I think that's the fear. Yeah. Um, but... Most people that drink when they're pregnant don't end up with kids with fetal alcohol syndrome. Because frankly, uh, you look at most of your professors, because they didn't know this back when our moms were pregnant, most of our moms weren't drunks. Oh, my, my mom's a bitch, she got a problem. No, she doesn't, it's a joke. <laughs> but they had the odd drink, no big deal. Right? Uh, it's the people that are shotgunning 12 packs that are the problem. So it's the same sort of thing. Um, that typically, we don't know usually what the safe amount is. Uh, and very often, it's the side, and also it's the side effects of the drugs societally. If you drink too much, it's not just going to be the alcohol that's going to affect the kid negatively, and it will. It's also the fact that you don't eat well. If you're hammered all the time, you're not going, I wonder if I get enough folic acid for my baby. You know, it just doesn't occur to you. So the thing about development is we can look at all this stuff and try to correlate this, but the, the hard part is when we have complex behavior, um, like intelligence, cognitive development, and trying to correlate that with brain development. And that is it for that. That takes a long time to do what it's supposed to do. Anyway, all right. So the... Uh, if you weren't here, you don't hear any review. Ha-ha. <laughs>
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.